I remember, you know, I was doing a sort of a, a different kind of analysis and I was like, huh, I'm only, um, when we started uh, ramp, I was 33% of the headcount. Um, uh, I'm 10%, um, now, uh, and I'm soon going to be five and I'm soon to be one today. I'm about half a percent. It really informs kind of how I think about investing today, which is bias primarily towards fintech companies that lead with software, what I would call like a network as opposed to leading with a financial product. So product strategy, I think what we learned uh, at Lending Club was really the, the impact of recurring revenue. Hello everyone and welcome to FinTech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early stage FinTech entrepreneurs in the US, Canada, and Latin America. In this special episode, we explore valuable company building lessons and mistakes shared by 20 of our guests from over the last two years. So if you're building a business, I hope you find it helpful. And I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more builders can find it. This show is divided into four categories of insights, organizational culture, product strategy, leadership tactics, and sales and marketing. Each chapter explores critical aspects of building a tech company, featuring the CEOs and founders of companies like Ramp, SoFi, Gusto, Lending Club, Figure, Upgrade, Milio, and Carta, amongst others. I think this episode is a treasure trove of lessons learned and strategic advice for current and aspiring fintech builders. I'm also including the links to each individual episode on Substack so you can dive into each one of them. First up, Mike Cagney, CEO of Figure, and Matan Barr, CEO of Milio, stress the importance of a strong foundation and mindful hiring to shape a company's culture. Josh Reeves, CEO of Gusto, and Prajit Nanu, CEO of Neum, highlight the dangers of poor hiring practices, emphasizing the need for value alignment. And Itai Damti, CEO of Unit, discusses the value of learning from mistakes and adopting a flexible approach to minimize future risks. One of the biggest things was when we started SoFi, we, we really had no idea what it was going to become or how how big the opportunity was. And, you know, we were obviously super fortunate and, and lucky that there was a significant opportunity there that we could build into. But it it didn't give us the opportunity to lay a foundation for culture and organization structure that, you know, would would support that kind of growth and that kind of market opportunity. And, you know, as a, as a consequence of that, the, we didn't have a, a super instilled culture, which was a, a significant headwind in terms of growing the organization, because we had, in particular, a lot of conflict within the organization and a lot of situations where, you know, people weren't all oriented to, this, to the same objective or same goal and infighting and so forth. And you know, ultimately, that was all my, my responsibility um, and something that I took very seriously as I was thinking about figure. And, and one of the things that we did with figure is the founding team spent a couple of months before we even went to raise capital for it, 
just establishing what the rules of the road are going to be. So what is the culture that we were going to try to build? Um, what were our expectations of each other and expectations of everyone that we brought on board? Um, what would we tolerate? What would we not tolerate? Uh, and just you know, established a very clear understanding of a rubric that we could that that was genuine, right? That we believed in um, and could execute to. Uh, and you know, in particular, one of the one of the biggest uh, things that we try to emphasize is is a zero tolerance for you know people called the no asshole rule. The biggest mistakes that I've done, at least in during the, it was probably during the the first uh, six months of starting the company. Um, where I optimized um, when hiring people, I optimized for um, uh, skills and didn't pay attention to culture. I'm talking about like the first like 10 people, like I was so eager to start building the company uh, that I was just hiring super fast and you know we had like incredible engineers uh that joined us but they were not necessarily the right material to create medios culture and um i think one thing that i didn't realize in the beginning and luckily we, we fixed it pretty fast but the the core group of people uh that you hire i don't know what's the number there are many types of benchmarks 10 15 100, their personalities become the company's personality. Like you can define company values uh, and hang them on the wall. I think it, it matters, but it doesn't matter much. Uh, I think what matters is who are included in the group, in the first initial group, because their behaviors will be contagious and other people that will join after would behave like this core group. That's how a company culture is created. Uh, uh, you have a core group of people and their personalities become the company's personality. Now, I wasn't uh, paying too much attention. Like, you know, I didn't hire like terrible people or something like that. Uh, there were good people. But, you know, I was uh, hoping for a, a culture with a specific set of behaviors that... Um, I know two people, three people in the beginning were not fully aligned with. And so uh, we had to fix this. And luckily we fixed it very fast, but it was like an extreme fix. So now Milio is so um, disciplined and strict about hiring in a way that is aligned with our culture that, you know, that mistake uh, basically led to a, an extreme correction that I think is part of our identity today. I can tell you that we were very poor hirers when we started. And it's largely because I didn't come from the industry. I didn't understand tech that well. Like, so a lot of my, uh, if you'll ask me, mistakes were on hiring. Uh, and like, and I keep telling early stage founders who I spend time mentoring and talking to is that hire people where urgency is top priority for them. If urgency isn't top priority for them, it is not going to work out. It's not about age, experience, skill set, nothing like that. But like startups who are not urgent will die a very quick death. We made a thousand mistakes in our previous company. <laughs> we made a thousand mistakes at Unit. Uh, but we hope we made a different set of mistakes, less costly mistakes. Um, there are many things I would change, obviously. I can get, get more specific. I think that... Um, uh, hiring, some of the hiring um, 
you're doing along the way needs to be better calibrated. Um, I think that standing up people and talent functions is a necessity. We were too late to do it. I think having an in-office culture is important, and we're just about to get into a new office in New York, but we accepted a hybrid situation that was um, mixed for a long time, and we, we should have called it quits earlier. Um, and we made a lot of business decisions. I mean, sales processes or, or positioning or product decisions that did not pan out. I think the goal is not to eliminate mistakes in building a company. The goal is to make the mistakes um, less costly, right? And, and make them, and that's the topic of atomic, atomic projects and atomic solutions or problems and solutions. If you make all of your problems atomic, then when you fail, when a solution does not really solve a problem, at least you haven't invested much. But I believe that uh, companies don't force people or, or try to convince people to join and candidates don't persuade companies to hire them. It's, it's both parties trying to figure out, uh, is there alignment for us to go do something incredible together? And so that alignment for us really falls in three dimensions. We have alignment around values, we have alignment around motivations, and we have alignment around skill set. I definitely think values are a byproduct of, of kind of the way one um, lives, works, who they've spent time with, what they believe in. But really, very importantly here, there isn't right, wrong values. I don't think if someone doesn't share gusto values, they're a bad person. It just means they would be more successful in a different company. And, you know, I also don't believe people have, you know, separate personal professional values. You just have your values. Next, Renaud Lepage, CEO of Upgrade underscores the need for recurring revenue, cautioning against over-relying on one-time revenue products. David Haber, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and Jason Gus, CEO of Octane, focus on customer acquisition challenges and how you should think about product strategy across tech, credit, and capital markets. And Stephanie Kirkpatrick, CEO of Forum, zooms in on operational efficiency and reducing the time to value. 10 years of running Landing Club was one of the, the first uh, fintech, one of the first successful consumer fintech companies. So you can imagine like lots of lessons learned. Um, I mean, just to, to um, sort of take a few, um, a, a couple, I'd say. Um, Maybe one in terms of like product strategy and, and one in terms of company building overall. So product strategy, I think what we learned uh, at Landing Club was really the, the impact of recurring revenue, right? I mean, we, we started with a sort of product that's great for consumers, so um, personal loan uh, that helps consumers um, so refinance their credit card and, and save on the cost of, of interest. So it's a really good product for, for consumers, um, but it's a product that's a, that generates a one-time revenue for the company, and it's not a frequent use product, right? You don't, you're not gonna refinance your credit cards every, every day or every month. Uh, it's a product you might use once every couple of years. Um, so that, that creates a stream of revenue uh, for a company that, that's really not as predictable as you'd like it to be. Um, because it's like, again, what time revenue at fault. And so every quarter you need to go like earn new revenue, uh, uh, acquire new customers. And so when, when we took Planning Club public, uh, that was really the, the, one of the 
key sort of short thesis was, hey, this company needs to grow on revenue every every quarter. So at some point, there's going to be a bad quarter. Um, so, so I think that's um, obviously something we we learned from and, and did differently at, at upgrade. In retrospect to your question, you know, we, the wedge product that we started with was probably the wrong one. You know, we started with term loans, which had a one to three year duration, you know, that ranged from $10,000 in size all the way up to a million dollars. So we had people borrowing on average about $150,000, you know, primarily again for growth financing, really to, you know, open up a new location or buy an important piece of equipment or, you know, uh, hire employees or refinance maybe, uh, you know, expensive credit card debt or, or merchant cash advance. Um, that product had great unit economics, but um, had a very kind of limited, tr it was a very infrequent and very considered transaction. And so what happened was, and that ultimately the biggest challenge and the thing we didn't do particularly well in my opinion was find cost-effective ways to scale, you know, customer acquisition and really find people, we didn't have a unique advantage in finding people at that transactional point of intent, right? You, you think small businesses, and it, it is a very large population, but getting in front of that small business owner at the specific point in time when they need a $150,000 loan to open that new location. And with a relatively, you know, our prices were pretty upmarket, you know, fairly low interest rates, which meant that the sort of credit box was fairly narrow. And so the funnel really narrows to a very specific point in time, both that somebody meets your credit, you know, criteria and needs that is ready to borrow $150,000 in that moment to open that new location. And so the cost of acquiring and getting in front of the customer at that specific point in time was very challenging. And so I think a lot of the lessons of the last five plus years in FinTech were a lot of the successes we've seen were people who started with uh, a financial product or honestly, ideally software, some sort of wedge that has near 100% approval rate. So ideally, anybody with a credit card can become your customer. If it's not software, it's a it's a pro, it's a financial product like a checking account or a debit card or even a credit card where you know the vast vast majority of people who apply you can approve, and then you build this sort of much larger user base, understanding their kind of financial history, their financial profile, and then layer in higher LTD products over time, understanding both the transactional intent and their approvability. It really informs kind of how I think about investing today, which is bias primarily towards fintech companies that lead with software, what I would call like a network, as opposed to leading with a financial product. We are not as concerned with speed of sales process and sales cycle because um, what we are concerned with is certainty, that it's roughly this long and we can expect it to be within kind of a, a standard cycle. What we're more interested in is after the sales cycle, right after the signature, what I call time to value, how quickly can you get them to do their first transaction? And the more that we've, it used to be hundreds of days, even though our API integration is easy, there were many things that we didn't know that they'd have to build. We had no playbook, right? And as we've operationalized that internally and externally, you know, that, num that benchmark has fallen to, on average, about 50 days. So now we can predictably say... If you sign on August 1st, you'll probably be live in less than 60 days. And then we can better forecast when will revenue hit. We've always had to sing for our dinner. We never got fundraising easily. And so our KPIs always need to be way better and super compelling in order for us to get every drop of capital into our business. 
because we weren't in one of these marquee markets where everyone's like, well, all you need is an idea and a paper and a good team will give you a, a ton of capital. That was never our story. And so the unit economics always had to work. There always had to be tons of margin. And so because of that, you know, one of the mistakes I believe some fintechs made, now I think very few of them make this mistake, is in the early days, you'd have phenomenal technology, sometimes phenomenal credit, and then almost capital markets was an afterthought. But we got the joke early. We understood that the difference between good capital markets execution and bad capital markets execution could sometimes, depending on your asset class, be more impactful than having the best underwriting versus the worst underwriting. Now, of course, you need to have the two play together. Without terrific credit, you can't have good capital markets. And so we kind of always invested equally into those three elements, technology, credit, and capital markets from an early, early, early on. And that really helped us support our unit economics. And so relative to many of our fintech peers, we securitized earlier. We got rated AAA from S&P and Kroll. Very few fintechs ever achieve those milestones. But what they give you is they give you access to much more stable capital markets. So you're able to access markets in far more environments and then also for cheaper capital. You cannot ever scale apart. Like I think two years later, as we were going through this management change within our team, I think uh, we kind of got together and said, what are we good at? Right? Let's not, let's forget about what the companies are using us for. Let's, what are we good at? And we spent a lot of time. And now what we've done is we've basically really granularized it to a large extent. Right? We focus on three different industries, banks and fintechs, uh, travel, and digital platforms. And within those, we power seven use cases. And that's all what we do. Right? So what we want to be is category leader in these seven use cases versus going and saying that, oh, I can do 20 different things, etc. And this shift over the last two years has led us incredible success because we suddenly found focus, which is very important as you get late stage. In the experience of connecting your bank account with Plaid, there are a few pains, one of them which we call the consent pain. The consent pain explains what's going on and, and, and it tries without having things buried in terms of service to be really clear with the user about what's happening. And then we have other, other screens where you log into the bank account and verify your phone number and your identity and all those things. And so we had done mocks of kind of futuristic versions of these experiences that we could do. And obviously the futuristic versions are very streamlined. So there are fewer steps and all those things. And so we did qualitative research with people about them and we showed them the like one that we thought would be the best, which is almost like you just connect your account with just one click, like super magical. And the qualitative feedback from people, once the experience got too easy, is that it was scary. And the feedback was like, this is my finances. And I expect there to be friction. And I expect it to feel like, like it has weight. And if you make the UX you know, instantaneous, like scans your face, connect your bank account, click once, it's jarring for people because it's so important. Like the thing they're trying to do, applying for a loan or like, moving $10,000 from one account, it's so important that they expect it to be a little bit difficult. And they need that friction to feel like the weight represents the activity, the action that they're trying to do. And I just thought that was really fascinating for us, which is like, you, you realize you're not just optimizing for conversion, you're optimizing for feel. Like the feel of the thing has to represent the kind of action that, that people do. 
Next, Eric Gleiman, CEO of Ramp, and Greg Krasnov, CEO of Tonic, talk about evolving from a hands-on founder to a strategic leader, highlighting the need for self-awareness, quality hiring, and smart resource allocation. Christo Borisov, CEO of Payhawk, focuses on the importance of customer feedback, and Ben Miller, CEO of Fundrise, discusses the difficulties of preserving company culture amid rapid growth. Two things that I would encourage people to think about are, one, um, you know, uh, in, I mean, a company is an allocation of resources. If you have product market fit, uh, probably the, the scarcest resource or the highest impact resource is the quality of people and spend a lot of time on that. The second is really know what are you really good at um, and what are you not um, and be real about it. And, and, and that's great. I remember, you know, I was doing a sort of a, a different kind of analysis and I was like, huh, I'm only, um, when we started uh, Ramp, I was 33% of the headcount. Um, uh, I'm 10% um, now, uh, and I'm soon going to be five, and I'm soon to be one today. I'm about half a percent. I'm not as useful as I used to be. I don't have as much impact in the same way. And I think at one point, I think the first blush might be like, wow, that's, that's in some ways could feel a little scary. In other ways, it's, wait, wait a minute, this is, um, this one, this is incredible, but um, I need to, I should really be putting a lot of thought into who and how we hire um, uh, because that can be unlock a ton of leverage um, for, for the company. Um, if I'm only a, a small part of it, maybe I should be spending a lot of time thinking about hiring. And so I think I've spent a lot more time, probably this time around, it's been closer to a, a third, uh, 40% of my time just on hiring and thinking through a process and meeting with candidates. And those people are really surprised the amount of time I'll spend with them. And it's because it's, I, I'm an account on them to make great decisions. And so we spent a lot of time. It's the second time one of our first 10 hires was uh, in talent. Um, uh, the other eight were in engineering. Uh, and the last one was me. Um, and so we, we we made a very different set of investment choices. And, and, and where we spent time is, I think, the, the first big change. And the second is, you know, um, I, I also gotten to know more of my gaps. There's certain areas where I'm really good at it. Um, surprisingly, I'm, some people who, who know and email me is I'm, I'm a little bit disorganized. Um, so that I don't get back to people, um, probably, which I, I still feel bad about. Um, but my, my, my sort of natural approach to things, if there's a hundred things to do, I'll, I'll, I'll probably do the, you know, the, try to figure out what are the t- top 10 highest leverage, most important to the best of my ability and the other 90 I might drop. Um, and so I try to find for balance of, um, who had great spice in, in hyper-organization and bring different parts of the company. I think it's been really good. I think um, one of the biggest mistakes that we have made in the company um, were in places where we didn't listen enough to the customer. Um, we had many opportunities where the customers were telling what's important and we were you know, understanding that feedback, but then we were trying to do too many things at the same time. And as we mature as a scale up, now the, the voice of the customer is a lot more clear and we are a lot more focused on just execution and drive. We have set on the strategy right now. It's about focus and operational excellence. So these are some, some of the, the big switch we had to do. Um, we had too many priorities, too many things we want to do at the same time. And when you're trying too many things to do at the same time, that's not going to be the great outcome. And now we're trying to be a lot more step-by-step step, um, that at the end of the day, we have been able to achieve 
a lot of things, but I think that could have been a, a bigger toll on the team, uh, a lot more pressure, a lot more stress on the team, and uh, uh, that that would have been easier uh, on the team if we had been a little bit more uh, structured at the beginning. I'd say that's one. Second thing is, um, you know, not letting people go immediately when you see things don't work. Sometimes, you know, you know, and there is something that I learned through through the hard time uh, is that this is very close to selling. So I do a lot of selling. So in selling, there is a saying that, you know, the moment you you think about reducing the canvas size of the of the sales is the moment you should start doing it right now. Um, because if you wait, then it's going to be too late in about 30 minutes from now. And the same thing is with, 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 uh, you know, letting go of people. Unfortunately, the moment you start thinking about that somebody needs to be let go is the moment you should do it. And unfortunately, this is, you know, the worst part of the job. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we try to give and support Everybody in the business, uh, for me as a, as a leader, when we let go of somebody, that's also part of my mistake, right? I have a learning from my first startup a long time ago, which is that the winner is the one who sees the brutal reality as fast as possible. And, uh, you know, this is now, I mean, I went through a startup from 1999 to 2001, so it dates me. Uh, and then 2001, obviously, Tech Bubble blew up. And um, I watched kind of like the full cycle from, I mean, 1999 was crazy. And then everything collapsed from 2001 to 2004. And so um, it's a funny psychological um, bias to not want to do the ugly, hard stuff. We went from 100 people to 300 people in 24 months. And then we went to remote. And the remote and the tripling of people that really undermined or, or diluted our culture. And, and um, we're, st we, we're, we're still um, working on that, basically. So I think that remote and really fast rates of expansion, like if you, you can have a certain amount of hiring and maintain culture, but if you are 100 people and you go to 1,000 people, you know, 90% of people don't have that culture. And, and so it's, so I think that like having, it's true the culture persists, but but it's actually like the growth fights cultural um, cultural norms. In my private equity days, I've actually seen you know entrepreneurs that can't make that transition from like being a really small startup guy to being a manager of an organization with over 100 FTEs because um, it's just a different mindset. Uh, you really need to then focus on you know different leadership competencies. Um, and the number one of those competencies is making sure you know what your weaknesses are. You build a team to kind of that is better than you are at whatever it is that they do. And then you become and the guy that runs the orchestra as opposed to the guy that solos, right? Um, so you no longer should be soloing. What you should be doing is really effectively making sure the orchestra all plays together to the same kind of, you know, energy to the same uh whatever time beat uh you know there are all these elements you coordinate uh as a leader so that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs you know when you think that you're going to be the, the guy on top there and like telling everybody what to do um yeah if that's your mentality then maybe you're better off like at some point just like stepping back and letting somebody step in 
that can be more inclusive in the decision pattern and make sure that there is marketable element in the team. Finally, Trisha Kothari, CEO of Unit21 and Soups Ranjan, CEO of Sardine, talk about the value of early founder-led sales. And Jane Alexander, CMO of Carta, focuses on the need to align goals between revenue and sales to enhance business performance. I think there are a few mistakes that people make often. Uh, the first is that they try to hire the super experienced VP of sales at a very early stage. And what you need in the very early stage is someone who is kind of ridiculously optimistic, is going to just make it happen and get you from maybe a couple customers or, or the range of 10 customers or so to, to the next level. And, and then once you have that, then you can hire more experienced salespeople and build out a sales function. Um, th that is something that I think very strongly that people often mess up very quickly. One of the biggest uh, lessons in the early days was uh, we are three co-founders, right? So myself, Addy, and Zahid, we all met at Revolute. Uh, we, in the early days, decided that, you know, in order to do sales, we'll hire someone to do sales for us. Uh, you know, that quite didn't work out. And then we realized that we have to actually step in into selling ourselves, right? Uh, and, you know, we took the company from zero to one million in ARR without a sales leader, right? Uh, with just, you know, all three of us jumping in sales calls and just, you know, actually hand-holding the customer. The reason it's very important uh, if you're building an enterprise business, the reason it's very important to go from zero to one million ARR without hiring a sales leader is that the, you will get direct feedback from the customer, because oftentimes we make up in our minds, you know, this is how the product should look like. But when you talk to the customer, you realize, you realize that, you know, their needs are very different. So that's one reason, direct feedback from the customer. And then the second reason is sales enablement in those early days is, is not really a thing. You have to actually think on your feet. And as founders, you have to uh, be able to answer the questions of the, of the customer on your feet, right? Uh, and only then can you actually bring in a sales leader? And that's what we did at Sardine. We hired someone phenomenal who has now taken us from one to you know, another order of magnitude. I think where a lot of sales and marketing teams can get into trouble is when their goals conflict. Um, so when marketing teams are measured on pipeline and sales teams are measured on revenue, um, there's a gap between them. And it leads to this finger pointing of, well, your pipeline wasn't good enough or no, you, 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 know, you're, you weren't good enough at closing it. It was great. And it creates that friction because the goals are different. So the first thing when I took this role, as I said, listen, my goal has to be the same goal as our CROs. We are one trying to drive revenue for the business. And we may have different aspects of that that we control. Our CRO, Jeff, has much more control over the close rate um, than I do. I can help with PMM, collateral, things of that nature. And I have more control over top of funnel, um, given the nature of our business and the dynamics of, of our business. But at the end of the day, we are both responsible for hitting our revenue number. And that's the number that I hold myself accountable to and report to the, to the board on. Well, my friends, that's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this awesome special episode on company building lessons. And if you're part of a team that's building business, I hope you find it useful. If you did, please share it with other builders. 
Also, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.